welcome listeners to a brand new bonus episode of Oh My Word Podcast. And today we've got a special treat. We have an author with us, Moni Richley Hadley. We're going to find out about her. Moni, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're very glad and excited to have you and to find out about all your work because you basically have books in three stages. You have published, almost published, and signed for publication. That's correct. Okay, one second. Let's jump ahead. What are your nerves like? What are my nerves like? As in, because you have a book out already, you're working on a book, but you still have to wait for another book. What's your patience level? Maybe that's the better question. What is your patience level like? I have pretty good patience level. Yeah, nerves is probably a better one. Promoting the book is the part that makes me the most nervous because being an introvert, doing all this stuff just makes me a little anxious. But of course, I do it and it's expected and and I want my books to sell. So that's the part that makes me a little nervous. But there's also so much excitement surrounding it. So you get a little of both. Yeah. That's probably the biggest thing for any author to learn is you have to tell people that you have a book. They will not know. You have to learn to tell people. Figure it out. So now going back to our origin stories. How did you get into all this? Why did you decide, I'm going to write a book, I'm going to write a kid's book? How did all this come about? My interest in picture books happened like many um, moms. I had a baby and I started reading tons of picture books to my girl. But I was thinking about this question and I remember meeting an author She wasn't published yet, but she was writing children's books way before I had my girl. And I thought, wow, who does that? That's a really cool job. And I was doing other things creatively at the time. So it kind of just flew in my brain and flew out. But years later, when I had baby, I definitely fell in love with the format of picture books, the words, the illustrations, and then just the interplay between the two. And so I started, I joined SCBWI through the recommendation of a friend who had a book published at the time. And that was about 2007 and joined a critique group pretty immediately and wrote for years. It took me a long time to get published. I was a home and hospital teacher for Yale USD at the time. So that was my priority and I I would write on my downtime. In the beginning, it took me a long time to make the shift. Okay, I'm in work mode and now I got to get in writing mode. And and as the years went on, that got a little bit easier and easier trying to fit it in half hour there, 15 minutes there. But it wasn't really until I retired from teaching that I really went in full steam ahead. And then within six months of retiring, I got a deal. Oh, wow. So it sounds like it happened quickly, but it didn't, it really did it because there were all the years you put in before that. Yeah, it took me 13 years, actually, from the moment I started writing to getting my deal. Have you met a lot of people who have similar, in the sense of that it also took them a couple years before they got published? Yeah, I mean, I guess you get the full range. I remember I listened to somebody at a conference and it took her longer. It may have been 16 years, but I've seen other people get published within five years. There's the full range out there. It took me a lot longer. I don't know. It is what it is. I'm really happy to be where I'm at right now and things are moving along really nicely for me. So that's great. We had Lori Polidoris on a while ago and I think it took her like two decades to get published. So you're ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah. Going back, that you said that you decided to look more into writing. Growing up, were you a big reader? Were books always a big thing to you? Or was it just something that was marinating kind of in your brain and then you fully came back to it once you were reading picture books to your kid? When I was little, my dad was 
away a lot. He was in the Marine Corps. So I don't remember being read to a lot. And my mom is Japanese, so she was learning English at the time. So I think the books were around, but we weren't read to a lot. And then growing up, as I got a little bit older, reading was really not my strong subject. I kind of struggled with it for a while. And I think that was a combination of just the type of books I like to read. And I struggled with reading for information. My eyes were also kind of going bad and I didn't realize it at the time. So it just became difficult for me, like in third, fourth grade, right around that time. But the younger books are what I really responded to. I remember those. And then when I started reading them to my daughter, they just ignited my whole love for that um, genre also. I spoke to someone once who said that a lot of people, when they want to get into writing for kids, they start with picture books because they think picture books are going to be easy. And then once they start learning about it, they realize it's not so simple. A lot of them will, either they drop out of it or they'll move on to other age groups after that. But when you first came in and you're writing picture books, did you have any sort of experience like that of, wow, this is totally not what I expected? Or was it just, I'm going to write the picture book and just staying focused like that? I think that's true. In the beginning, you think, oh, it looks so easy, but it is difficult. It's way more difficult as evidenced by the 13 years it took me to get. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think if you hang in there long enough, it is about persistence and finding the one person who is going to resonate with that story just takes that one. But, uh, you know, compared to novel writing or um, other genres, I feel it's easier because I can't plot and hold that kind of information in my head and do all that follow. I admire people who write really lengthy books. I don't think I could do that. Yeah. Everyone's got their thing. So they said that after you retired, it was six months till you got a deal. Did you have an agent before then? Do you have an agent now? Or were you holding with that? I got published before I got an agent. So after I retired, I decided to take a class. It was an online class. It was the business of writing and illustrating children's books by the Children's Book Academy run by Nira Riceberg. And in that class, it's a series of weeks and you study. There are guest editors and guest agents who guide you through the course and you do homework. And I worked on a couple of stories in that class and then kind of threw them out thinking, ah, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And then pulled this other manuscript that I decided to work on kind of toward the end of that course and did a major, major revision of it. It doesn't look anything like the original. And at the end of that course, you put up a pitch from the story that you worked on. And if one of the editors or agents like the pitch, they give you what's called a golden ticket. And I got one from an editor at Albert Whitman. And she asked me to do some changes and I did. And then that's how it was acquired. I had been sending the story around to some agents, but she was the only editor, really, that had seen it. And they snatched it up, and that's how I got my first deal. That's amazing. So after you signed with the editor, that was going to get published. That's taken care of. You worked directly with the editor. Then afterward, you kept querying agents. Hey, by the way, I've got this book coming out with Albert Whitman. I have more of them. Or what did that look like once you already had that deal? So I kept querying agents and the manuscript I was working on at the time, I submitted to Karen Grensick from Red Fox Literary. She was a guest at one of the San Diego online conferences and I submitted the story that's going to be out in 2024, Miso Magic. And 
I literally submitted to her right before the deadline, right before midnight, the day it was due. She responded within a week and I didn't end up signing with her, but she said that she had an agent within her agency, a new agent, and that's Sarah Stevens. That's who I signed up with. Oh, very nice. Yay. But your second book, you got a book coming out next year. Is that with Albert Whitman or is that the same editor or that's... All three of my stories are with Albert Whitman. So the way the second book came about, Anzu and the Art of Friendship, is Albert Whitman approached me. An editor there had developed an idea for a story, and then they approached me about writing it. It's so weird, but you never know what your path is going to look like, because I didn't get my first deal the way I thought I was going to get it. I didn't really get my agent the way I thought I was going to get my agent. And then my second book deal, I never thought would come about in that way either. My second book on Zoom, The Art of Friendship, was a great experience. And it was a different editor than my first book that I worked with. And we developed a nice working relationship. When my third book came across her desk, she snatched that one up. And I'm working with the same editor again. So that'll be fun. Amazing. Writers and editors, writers get so wary of of editors. So when you find a good editor that you can work with, it's just like, stay here forever. Yeah, I've had really good experiences with editors. I've just worked with the two with my first book and then my second and third. And I've had such good experiences. I really look at editors like mentors in a way because they really do know how to help you bring the best out of your story. Right. At least in my experience. Yeah, that's so true. Going back a little bit, when you sent the first book to the editor and she said, okay, will you make some of these revisions? Was your initial reaction like, oh, that's smart or okay, let me figure this out? Like, what was your initial thought of the revisions? Um, yeah, I'm going to do this. <laughs> it is like problem solving. It's always like a puzzle to me. Like, okay, this is what I need to make work. How am I going to make that work? Because I never really tell you what to do. They just say, you need to flesh out this idea or how can you make this work? And then you have to figure out how to do it. So it's kind of like a puzzle to me and a challenge. Yeah, it's true. And it's probably better like that because the point is it's your book. Actually, we're referencing your books. Please will you give us descriptions what each book is and just a general idea of what each one's about. The Star Festival is about a girl who uses the story origins of the town of Matsuri, which is the Star Festival, to help find her Oba or grandmother when she gets lost in the crowd. It has a little bit of mythology and multi-generational themes in the book. And that was the first one. And then my second book, Anzu, Art of Friendship, is about a girl who discovers that the secret to making friends has a lot to do or a lot in common with the art of origami folding. And that sort of has themes of... My childhood, I moved a lot because I was a military brat. So coming to a new school was always, I was shy and making friends was always a, oh gosh, here I go again. Break out of my shell. You should see some of my report cards. They all say the same thing the second term. Moni is starting to come out of her shell. And then my third book, The Magic, is about a young boy who begrudgingly finds the magic in the Misa-making process and consequently also in spending time with his father. And that book kind of originated because of my mom's hatred for beans. (laughs) When I started researching for the Star Festival, I had a lot of chats with my mom about my childhood, about her childhood, and all this information and kind of dig into my ancestry and heritage came out of that. And one of them was Miso Magic. And because I asked her, well, why do you hate beans so much? And she said it's because her father, my grandpa, had a Miso 
production house on his property and he would make miso and tamari and she was the one who had to climb up these huge barrels and smash the beans and her mother used to tell her well you better not fall in because you'll never come out of there and she hated this job she absolutely hated it so that was new information for me and I just had this kind of idea in my head for a long time just simmering there before I actually decided to write it but that was the origins of that story well and then the star festival was that a book that you've been working on for like the 13 years until you got it published or that's a book that came later It came a little bit later, but it was a very minimal, probably under 200 words or maybe even maybe under 100. And it was sort of a concept book about how kids are very similar to the elderly. And it was a little too much from the mom's perspective. And me packing my bags before leaving the house for my mom. She lives with me. So it was all her diabetes medicine. And for my daughter, it was all her diapers and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what it was in the beginning. I still had the same plot point where Olba or grandma gets lost but in the original she got lost in a doctor's office which was kind of boring my boutique partners kind of moved me in a different direction I made it a festival and then during the course that I took which helped me get published I had a a one-on-one with an editor and she's like well which festival is it and I had no idea I grew up partly in Japan and I had ideas of the many festivals I attended there which I had no recollection of what I was celebrating and then fairs that I attended in America and so I had to kind of research well what were these festivals I celebrated in Japan and once I did that and picked a festival then a whole new world opened up because I had different visuals a different setting and that's what kind of moved me into that path of the Star Festival. Was it kind of weird writing knowing that someone else was going to be illustrating it or you didn't think about the illustrations as you wrote it? I don't think it was weird. I think I just assumed that would be the case. Right. Did you have to send info on the Star Festival or was it enough that they were able to read your text and it was up to them to figure the rest out kind of thing? I had back matter and I did have a ton of art notes, partially because a lot of the information was about the Japanese culture. And up until that point, I always was that person. I heard that you should not put art notes in. So I never did until I got to the story. And then I just felt like it was needed. Anything that was confusing to any of my critique partners, I just put an art note in. I explained it. And I had quite a few, at least probably 75 words, at least in art notes. So I think it was necessary for this book. Well, you said it seems like the art notes are more about cultural art notes and not about draw this art note. Yeah, it's such a controversial topic and be really confusing. But ultimately, you just got to make your story understood. If they're necessary, put them in, I feel. (laughs) Yeah. And if I understand correctly, because I got novels, I don't have picture books, or at least not yet. They'll kind of show you like, this is the illustrator we're looking into. You're good with this artwork. And then they just move forward from there. And then you'll just see everything once it's done. Or how does that part actually work? Or how much say do you have in that? Albert Women paired me up with Mizuho Fujisawa, which she's a um, Japanese. So that helped a lot, the culture already. So she contributed a lot to the illustrations. Every time I showed them to my mom, she was just like, oh, this reminds me of home. (laughs) And Mizuho now says like, oh, your words remind me of home. And, you know, so that was definitely helpful. And see, I'm trying to think back. 
I was surprised because Albert Whitman did show me the process of the illustrations. And I'd always heard that authors have no input in that. And even before I got the deal, I had heard other people say, I was sent a picture of the illustration or illustrations, and I just said, it's all good, it's all good. But they included me in the process and asked me for notes about illustrations also. So I felt a little out of my league, but... I also felt like, well, if I feel strongly about something, I should say it. So I usually do, I make like a whole list of notes that I would like to see happen with the illustrations. And then I go through and I edit it. Okay, well, what are my most important notes? And then once I get those, I send them to the editor. And I know that all of those notes aren't going to be used. They'll agree with some and they'll disagree with others. And then whatever happens, happens. Is that on the one hand, you don't want to be a hard to work with kind of person because even if your stuff's great, people shy away from that. But at the same time, you're like, well, I better just say something because this is my book. I want to love my book. Well, part of it is I do have certain ideas in my mind. Sometimes, yeah, it's a vision thing. It's a matter of how you see it or what's going to work out, what's going to play out to tell the story in the best way. I think for me, it's more about trusting that there's a team of people working on this book to make it the best book it can be. And I didn't go the self-publishing route because I don't trust myself to be (laughs) an expert in all those fields. There's the illustrator who knows way more than I do, the editor who's a professional in her field. There's a book designer. There's people who do this every day. So I do trust that their opinions matter in the process too. So it's less about being a difficult person or not being a difficult person and more about just trusting that these professionals are all there to help make the book the best it can be. Yeah, that's true. And then your other two books, do they each have their own separate illustrator or you have any of the illustrators are doing more than one of your books? The second book, Anzu and the Art of Friendship, the illustrator is Natalia Takayama, and I have not worked with her before, so that's new. And then my third book, Miso Magic, Mizuho Fujisawa has signed on board to do that one as well. Oh, nice. The second one is the one that you said there was something with origami in it. Was origami something that you knew or you had to like better research this and figure it out? I do know a lot about origami because I grew up making it. It was just part of my upbringing, really. Do you have back matter about designs that kids could do in the back of the book? No, I don't think that's going to be included in this book. We talk about the symbolism, the symbols, and what they mean a bit in the culture, but not really the construction of the figures. I'll be trying to do that during author visits, though, hopefully. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to teach origami to somebody who has no experience with it because it's such a precise art. When you teach it to younger kids and if their fine motor skills aren't quite there yet, it can be kind of challenging. I've tried it in my own classes when I was a teacher. And you're like, this is probably going to need more than a 30-minute lesson. Definitely. A lot of it is just the practice of the folding. You just kind of learn it in baby steps. But you can definitely overshoot. In my lessons, my first lessons, I definitely thought, oh, this is going to be really easy. And it is not. Lesson learned. Yeah. Uh So now that the book's out, especially first book, you're grabbing up for a second book. What do you have to do now that the book's out? As in Albert Whitman, they're like, hey, try to get into schools, try to do whatever. Do they kind of help you? Like we have certain contacts for you. What do you got to do now to let people know that you got the book? Star Festival came out in 2021. So that was during the pandemic. And I just tried to do as much as I could that kind of came my way. There was Zoom meetings and... (laughs) 
can't even verbalize. Like it was such an intense year because it was exciting and you feel like you have to do everything for the book, right? right? There's no guide to tell you what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do. Even the publishing company didn't say you must do this or you must do that. It's left up to you. So I always feel like I need to promote it more and more and more. However, if I compare myself to other authors out there. There's people who do way more than I do. They're out there on every blog and have massive tours. And then there's people who don't do much at all. I'm still discovering books from 2021. And I've never heard of the book or the author. So there's a whole range. I think I'm somewhere in between. But Albert Women doesn't really tell you what you need to do. And I'm not sure. I think there are some publishers who do. But I don't know. I definitely now with my second book, I will select the things that I want to do. <laughs> yeah. There are certain things I will pass on because it's hard to do everything. Yeah. Or whatever is going to suit your audience or book best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like unless you're like the superstar author, a lot of authors, it's the promoting and stuff is really just up to them. Yeah. And that's confusing because some people say, well, it doesn't really matter how much you promote it, sort of a machine in place, and it's going to generate the sales it generates. And then there's some people who say, well, social media matters a lot, and you should be promoting it all the time. And there's some people who say, well, you should be promoting yourself as a brand and all aspects of your life and not just keep promoting your book. Yeah. The full gamut. And ultimately, I think you just have to find what works for you. It's funny that you almost need permission to be told that kind of stuff because you do think, well, if I don't do everything, nothing will sell at all. It's like, take a deep breath. Find what's good for you. The pressure is on, you know. For me, I feel like I want to promote the book because I owe it to myself because I've been working hard all these years. I owe it to everybody else who's invested in this book and I want kids to read it. So I feel like I should be out there promoting my book. And I do, to the best of my ability. Yeah. Have you read the book to kids and then either been surprised or there was some sort of reaction that you didn't really expect in a good way or like they start asking questions about something and you're like, actually, I don't know what happens to that character. Did that kind of stuff happen when you went to read to kids? Actually, the last time I had an author visit... There's a great moment. I was reading the first couple pages of my book, and Keiko, the young girl, screams, Today is the Tanapata Matsuri! And she's all excited to attend the festival. And then her mom kind of hushes her, and then she screams it again, Tanapata Matsuri! So I had asked the audience or the kids, Okay, and Keiko and Oba scream together! And I wanted them all to say it. I think they would say it again, and they all went, Ah! <laughs> I love this moment. You're like, right, kids are very little. Yeah. Ah, very good. Not what I expected. Good job, everyone. Exactly. Yeah. You can always count on kids to give you the unexpected, too. Yeah. Before you sent your books out, or you're ready for it, do you test them? How old your daughter is now? Do you test them? And anybody else? Or you just keep with your critique groups and stuff like that? I used to read them to my daughter, and she's now in college, so she's away, but I used to read them to her. And quite a few years ago, I had kind of a little residency at a a used clothing store for kids, and I was friends with the owner, and she would let me come in and do a story time. So I would pick a theme and kind of generate it around the theme of one of my books, and I would read a bunch of published authors' books, and then I would read my book, which did not have visuals because it was 
wasn't published, but I would bring puppets and everything and, and read my book out loud. And there's so much value in hearing your story out loud, right. either other people reading it or even yourself. You find the parts that are just so cringy. Yeah. You find parts that kids react to positively. So I did that for a little while, but I do want to get back to working with kids in some capacity, maybe volunteer work or something, because now I'm not teaching anymore. And I think it's important to keep yourself in the mind frame of a younger child. I'm looking for an opportunity to do that. Just being plugged in. Yeah, I sometimes hang around the park where I walk and run and I just listen to their conversation because it's just so fun. But I need to do it more. I need to be around a group of kids. When you're coming, like when you're at the Star Festival to kids and you have Japanese names for certain things, you're just like, oh, this is grandma or this is grandpa. And they're just like, okay. Or some of the kids are like, we have no idea what you're talking about. No, they usually get it because of the illustrations. Ah, yeah. Very good. Not for the wrap-up. We'll do the wrap-up in one second. But what's kind of one thing you'd give someone who did want to write picture books or something? And you'd be like, just keep in mind X. Or what's just something from your, one of the biggest things you've learned from writing picture books? In a way, it's taught me to listen. Just to listen. Being in critique groups is so huge. It's a big part of the process. So listen, but at the same time, follow your gut instincts about decisions for your book or your career or whatever. To listen and follow your gut at the same time. There's so much advice given and it's good to take that advice, but I see people making their own path every day and it's always different. Getting published and getting your agent is never what you expect. And even your stories, you might have a clear path which you want to write, but you have to allow for it to take a different turn if it needs to go that way. Absolutely. That's very good. We should frame that or something. We need magnets for the fridge with this. <laughs> I'm sure it's been said before. Well, I don't know. I hear it from you now and that's who I heard it from. So all that very good point. So good. That's a good note for us to wrap up on. So we always do the wrap up. We do a fill in the blank using one of the nouns. I really like it when writers, editors, publishers, illustrators, covers, bookstores, librarians, whatever. Stories, big story related. I really like when and I really don't like when. But how would you fill in the blank for that? So I really like it when books tackle heavy themes in creative and really beautiful ways. And the books that really make me stop to think about life. They don't always get published, but I really love books. I end up buying those books. And I really don't like it when books are not available in my local library. By the way, you can request. Yeah. Everybody can request books at their local library. And I've never followed up to see whether they actually get those books. But I have done that before, too. Are they usually pretty nice about that when you come to request a book? Well, there's an online form, at least in oh. the LA Public Library. So you can fill out a form and do it that way. I use actually two library systems. I use the LA Public Library and the LA County Library. Mm -hmm. And between the two, I can usually get the book that I need. But yeah, you can request. That's yeah. something I need to do. I need to follow up and see whether the books I requested were actually brought into the library system. Right. Because on the one hand, they're working with budget. And on the other hand, there's a bazillion books out there. So they're not going to know about it if you don't tell them about it. Yeah, it's impossible for them to have everything. But I still don't like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree 100%. Just to follow up on one thing, you said that you like books that tackle heavy themes. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of like sort of things we talk about, like big emotions? Like you have a book like, um, I don't remember who wrote it, but there's something about the rough patch is it a fox that he has a, a pet dog right and the dog dies so he's dealing with the grief of that like that kind yeah. of book 
That's a great one. The Rough Patch, Boats for Papa, I Talk Like a River, which is about a boy who stutters. That's a really good one. The Jacqueline Woodson one, um, The Other Side, that's an older book. Knock Knock, that's a great one. I like books that really make me think about life and I feel like I'm always just trying to figure out like why why we're all here and what are we doing and, and where do we go and so my books resonate with me some people have religion and some people have picture books yes that's <laughs> I like that I'm gonna frame that picture book writers it's a different kind of writing skill just the brevity of it and being able to be impactful at the same time yeah. yeah, and the themes are so, they can be so meaningful, and I feel like all adults need to read picture books as well. And just remind themselves. We can all remind ourselves, well, these are ways we can be kind, and, and ways we can all get along, and ways we can shine, be who we are, and all these wonderful themes that we read about in picture books. It's like sometimes the simplified message is the one that gets through, kind of. Yeah. That's good, encouraging hopefulness to wrap up with. Very, very Great. good. Well, Moni, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fun to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This was a bonus episode of Oh My Word podcast featuring author Moni Richie Hadley. To find out more about Moni and her work, please visit the link in the episode notes. To find out more about Oh My Word podcast and keep track of all the great stuff we're up to, please follow us on Instagram at Oh My Word podcast or check us out at eltenenbaum.com. Music is by Tim Burke. Thank you so much for joining us. Catch you next time.